This episode is sponsored by Patagonia. In 1972, Chenard Equipment bet the farm, urging climbers to stop using their best-selling product in order to protect the rock. Clean climbing, making the switch from pitons to chocks, fundamentally changed both the art of the sport and the ethos of the community. It was climbing's first environmental movement and instilled the values that drive Patagonia to this day. But more importantly, it was a challenge. What are climbers capable of achieving in order to protect the places we love? 50 years later, Patagonia is asking that question again. They're still committed to the vertical wilderness and putting style over summit. It's a commitment to the sport we love, their technical climb product, and the planet we're still working to save. Go to patagonia.com slash clean climbing to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by Sterling. A wet rope is heavy, hard to handle, and can be flat out dangerous. That's why Sterling developed their new line of dry climbing ropes using Zero's technology. Zero's is a whole new way to manufacture UIAA certified dry ropes that are more effective, wear resistant, better for the environment, and only available from Sterling. Visit sterlingrope.com to learn more and use the code DIRTBACK for 15% off. And you can also find these links in our show notes. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode nine of season four, conversation with Stephen Dimmitt. Um, Stephen is the host of the Nugget Climbing podcast, and we actually interviewed each other for this episode. But I really got a lot out of this. It's always fun for me when someone asks me questions about the history of the zine because it really does go back to basic print media, which is where I started and now is something of a, a novelty really in the space of, of outdoor media. You know, when I started writing, there were no podcasts, no blogs, um, barely websites, stuff like that. So it's always fun to go down through memory lane. And then, um, you know, S- Stephen from the outside, like looking at his podcast, he's been at it about just as long as I have, but he's got, you know, tons more episodes. He's got a much bigger following and from the outside looking in, it's like, wow, this guy's got it made. He's just really crushing it. And then kind of peeking inside, you know, he uh, he has he puts a lot of pressure on himself and, and what he does is the result of a lot of hard work. And um, we kind of got into that, me almost giving him advice in some ways and then um, just picking his brain of, you know, what he's done and how he works and everything like that. And I got a lot out of this one. I look forward to doing a full interview with Steven, both him interviewing me and me interviewing him. And um, this one was just a joy. And I hope you all enjoy it as much as I enjoyed creating it with Steven. You can check out more from the Nugget Climbing podcast at thenuggetclimbing.com. And they've got a great network of Patreon support. I think he's also got some merch out. He's just really got a great thing going on over there. And I get a lot out of it when I can dip in and listen to his podcast and check out his website and his social media and stuff. If you want to support the zine, you can head over to climbingzine.com. We've also got some links in our show notes to subscribe. Uh, We've got a Patreon as well. We're working on expanding that a little bit but you know you can check out our merch our books our zines stickers and subscriptions all at uh, the link in our show notes and there's even a link to get a little discount uh, off anything in our store this episode of the dirtbag state of mind podcast is sponsored by kilter 
Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter Board. The Kilter Board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. There are over 66,000 problems in the original Kilter Board layout, and the newer Homeboard layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. The new map feature helps you find and connect to Kilter Boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple ball sizes and package options available, so we can help you get a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. All right. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. Um, this is really funny. I don't even know whose podcast we're on right now. Um, podcast world. <laughs> but we're, we're on two podcasts at once. Let's start with tacos. We just had tacos together. And while we were eating tacos, you were telling me that you used to work there at this little taqueria in town here in Durango. Tell me about Tim. The first question I want to ask you is, First, who is Tim and what did you learn from Tim? Sounds like Tim was a mentor. That's awesome. Yeah, Tim Turner. Shout out to Tim Turner, who was a mentor of mine uh, when I was working at Zia Taqueria is where we were. And he, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but I have a, a very artistic mind. Um, I don't, I don't think, um, I've, I have to really work at thinking at things in a, scientific, mathematical, or business sense. So I, even though I had my own business, I didn't really understand what it was to run a business. And he literally had me write down on a piece of paper, be like, how much money do you need from sponsors so that the zine can be sustainable? And it was that simple of a thing um, to realize like if you're going to do print media, which is what I do, um, which is a very, very specific niche within climbing, I needed to have a certain amount of advertising revenue come in per issue. And within that step, it was also like, all right, then write down the brands you want to get. And it was like Patagonia, Black Diamond, Osprey, the big heavy hitters that are still my sponsors to this day. Um, but it was just that visualization of how much money do you need this month to pay your bills? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I had such little business sense at that time. I needed someone to force me to do that. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense because you're, you're a writer, you're a creator, you want to tell stories. And I think this happens with a lot of creators where they have a great idea or they're really great at something, but building a business is a completely different set of skills. And a lot of successful creators either somehow luckily have a mind that can do both or they have to like really learn one of the things and it's really hard or they partner with someone who's good at the other thing. 
Yeah, there's a reason the starving artist is yeah. is, a, is a term for a, a reason. Right, you know? right. And, and many artists and writers before me um, didn't make it to, you know, I, I think it's easier in this modern era more than ever to be creating something and then have an easy way to get support, you know, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious if there's anything else you learned from Tim because we're eating tacos. You were describing that you were starting the zine and you had this side hustle or this the zine was your side hustle and you also had a job at a taqueria and Tim was this mentor who really supported everything that you did with with the zine. Yeah, that's already a great example of just writing down, okay, how much do I need to actually make to make this feasible? But any other lessons? Like, you know, a taqueria is very, very different than a magazine or from writing but business is business um what were some of those other like light bulb moments that tim unlocked for you yeah it's uh i guess i'm thinking first off the bat if if you have a we call it the durango tango here where you a lot of people have to have multiple jobs to make ends meet okay um so go into that second job i went into the job interview telling them my dream is to be a writer. My dream is to be a publisher. So they knew that the whole time. Um, and Tim just wanted to, he just saw someone that he could could mentor and pass on his business knowledge that he had put out. But I feel like I was the manager at that point. I had a long career as a, a dishwasher. I was like the stoner dishwasher for 20 years. And then after I'd worked in restaurants for so long, like you could be a manager, you know? And it's like counting the money at the end of the night um, and, and seeing how that stuff fluctuates and, and realizing like the guy who wasn't there working is, is getting the most of the money. You know what I mean? Mm. So I don't think that's as much of a, a lesson he imparted on me, but it made me want to be a business owner mm. versus an employee who is getting a certain amount of money. No, you know, like you make basically the same amount of money if it's a busy night or a slow night. And then the owner is taking the um the cake so it it really made me actually not want to make money for someone else Mm -hmm. Um, like working in a a business it made me want to make money for myself and tim because he knew my intention going into that job he just wanted to support me to actually do that versus being a great employee for him he knew what my real goal was is to be a writer and an artist and everything so yeah it's kind of like at the end of the day you're counting that money and is that money yours like now the money I, I collect through, you know, selling the climbing zine online and stuff, like I, I keep all that money, you mm-hmm, know, so mm-hmm. um, just, just as simple as, um, you know, wanting to collect as much money from your work as you possibly could. Right, yeah. right. To be an employee, you're kind of like renting out your time to someone else. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. But I'm sure you didn't start the zine because you thought a climbing magazine would be super lucrative and make you tons of money. Because, you know, it's a total passion project, I'm sure. It's awesome that you're making a living doing it and mm-hmm. able to su- to support it. But why why the zine? I, I think that's interesting. I think when I first heard about the climbing zine, I thought zine... I, didn't, I don't have a background in really reading magazines, zines, whatever. And so when I heard the climbing zine, I thought that was just like a cool, like hip way of saying magazine. It took me a while to realize like, no, this is a separate thing, like the smaller format, you know, it's a different format, different layout, whatever. Um, almost like a miniature book. Why that for you? Did you always want to do that format or? No. So I, I started off in the era of, of writing for magazines um, and print newspapers. So 
I started writing in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, and that's where your outlets were. You know, it was like a big deal to get published in like climbing and rock and ice, you know, um, back when they even did. I mean, now we're having this conversation when they don't even do print. Um, so th- I was just a, a writer that, um, you know, it was, it was quite hard to get published. It was an honor to get that on your byline to get published, whether it's the Mountain Gazette, Alpinist, Climbing, Rock and Ice, even the local newspapers to me were a big deal. And a couple years post-college, like we were kind of talking earlier about purpose and and where you find meaning in your work. And I was kind of a dirtbag climber by default. Like it was, it was a passion, but it, it wasn't, um, it was just like, I didn't really know what else to do with my life for a couple of years. So I just went climbing and, and washed dishes. And um, one season I um, got tendonitis and I, and I was at a loss for how to cure it. And uh, I've, I figured out a lot of things by now with acupuncture and yoga and stuff, but I was just struggling and I was living in a basement in Salt Lake city and working at this restaurant. And I basically, because I couldn't climb, I lived in the library and coffee shops mm-hmm. and I was just writing by, you know, um, vivaciously, just like writing all the time. And in the library in Salt Lake city, there was a zine section. Mm. So it was all, and zines actually come from skate and punk rock culture. Can um, you describe or define what a zine is exactly? Like I understand it, it just, I've kind of deduced it just from seeing what you do, but what characterizes a zine? It's independent, self-published without outside interest. So I think that's where it fits in skate and punk rock culture of like, this is our message. This is what we want to do. So it's like, completely unfiltered and almost unprofessional. Mm. Um, if you look at the, if this zine library still exists in Salt Lake City. Is the size part of it? Are they all the same? Like, the So same a, a, your basic zine is a, is a regular piece of paper folded in half. Oh, okay. Because that's what they did. They Xeroxed them. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. And, and distributed them. Yeah. And so I saw this format and loved it, but I hated the content. Like I don't, nothing against skater punk rock culture, but it was too abstract. There wasn't a story, but I love the format. And the one I actually liked was this one called Dishwasher. Hmm. And it was about this guy, Pete Jordan, who tried to wash dishes in all 50 states. <laughs> <laughs> what a goal. Yeah. And he was on, he was on like David Letterman and stuff. If you oh, YouTube wow. David, he actually spoofed David Letterman. Um, David Letterman tried to have him on his show and he didn't want to do it because he didn't want the notoriety. And so he sent his friend. And so David Letterman interviewed his friend thinking it was him. No and then way. David Letterman, and this is when David Letterman, you know, like late night was everything, you know, it's not yeah. really like it is now. Um, and so David Letterman actually had him back on again and be like, you, you totally like <laughs> spoofed me. Like wow. what the hell? And so, um, <clears throat> I was a, I was a dishwasher for a long time. As I said, it was kind of like my, my default job just to make money. And, um, I, at this restaurant, it was called Sage's cafe in Salt Lake city. And, uh, I just, I had all these stories from writing, um, every day in the coffee shops and stuff. And, um, I put them into a zine cause I saw that format and, uh, the owner of Sage's cafe, this guy named Ian said, I'll give you $200 for a sponsorship. And so I took the $200 and I printed a hundred copies of it. Um, I have one over here. I'll show it to you when we're done chatting, but it was called Moonlight Dream Chasers, the buildering issue. And most of the stories were fiction buildering stories. <laughs> and then I did another one. Um, after that time period, I, I decided to get a writing job at my alma mater. Uh, I was kind of sick of the dirtbag life. 
And uh, I got a writing job for a time period. And so I did another zine there. And then my third zine was the climbing zine, thinking it would just be a one-time thing Mm. because I had this professional writing job, but I wanted to keep my passion for my climbing stories going because that's kind of what I had done. Climbing stories and poetry had kind of been the heart of, of my favorite type of writing. And so I figured I'd do one climbing zine. Um, and I'm just going to grab one right now so you can see it. <laughs> that's, that's the first one. Oh, wow. And okay. Second one. Luke's showing me just folded pieces of paper with staples in the back, just super bare bones. And that, that's the very first climbing zine right there. And so I thought I would do just one of them. And then um, around that time period, I actually lost the, the full-time job that I had. And so I started, I did another climbing zine and, and the second zine looks even worse than that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then and you can see, you can kind of see the proof of I'm not, uh, I'm an artist by the heart of what I do is, is being an artist. And then the business and the professional stuff comes later. <laughs> but this is cool. I mean, I would, I would pick this up off the shelf. Right. You know, yeah. Just and I think we sold them for $2 or different. And, but it also, I mean, I'm like, is this from the seventies? Like what, you know, it, it looks old. It looks older than it probably is. When did you make that first one? That's 2010. 2010. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I like the, um, kind of the throwbacky, really simple feel of it. That's cool. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the genesis of why zines, you know, attracted me And then my friends kept being like, you know, climbing has great photography. Climbing has all these elements to it. You should turn this into a color publication. Mm. And they were totally right. And I actually took um, the retirement money that I had from that job I had for two or three years. It wasn't a ton of money, but I took every penny into printing a color publication and and turning the zine into color, which I think we started color in volume four. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome, man. It's it's fun to hear all this. Um, so all this started with you being a writer and wanting wanting to share your writing. But the zine now, um, you gave me a couple of them, twenty one and twenty two, and I've been looking through those and reading parts of them. And you feature mostly other people's writing. Um, you always have a couple stories from yourself. What does your process look like? How do you find other people? How do you choose stories that you want to share? And what is at the heart of, like, what connects it all, I guess, for you? Like, what, what is it that you're looking for in a story? Well, I'll go backwards on answering your questions because you, you just did what I feel like I do with a lot of people too, is like ask multiple questions. Ask too many questions one. at once. Yeah. I do that all the time. Um, which I think is actually just a, uh, it shows your curiosity, you know? Um, and that's, that's how I think when I get myself into trouble too, I'm like, wait, what about this and this and this? Um, the core of the zine is, is telling climbing stories that, it doesn't matter what you're climbing. Um, if you can write a story about a five, five, like in this newest zine, Katie, uh, Griffith has this amazing story about, um, a climb they didn't do (laughs) Mm. like just bailing on a climb basically, but she wrote about it so well. Mm. And she was writing about, uh, grief and she was writing about her own journey in life and this friendship with this person. And so to me, it's it's not about the num it's not i think the difference between my publication and other climbing publications is there's no real 
emphasis on any sort of number. So it's like your personal journey with a climb and how well you can tell that story and kind of key buzzwords like vulnerability, um, storytelling. Um, you know, a lot of people have written about different mental health things, which I think is really great that um, I think a lot of us climbers look for our, our, ment- our upside of our mental health within climbing. Mm. Um, but I historically don't think it's been written about a ton. Uh, or you're, it, it's really, it comes down to like a personal journey with whatever you're, um, you're writing about and, and you're getting to be like a better person or you're getting to know yourself better through the story. Um, so I feel like that's really the theme that connects all the stories in the zine. Occasionally we'll just have one. Um, like Pete Whitaker, I think is probably one of our best writers at like, I'm just going to write just about climbing and he does it so well. And so matter of factly, um, which is very hard to do, I think too. Um, but yeah, usually there's this, this greater meaning behind a story and sorry, what, what did we, it was, uh, what was the other part of the question? I was curious how you chose stories, found people to collaborate with. Yeah. yeah. And you're, you're answering that. Yeah. 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 And so a lot of times they just end up in my email, you know, so people kind of know the type of stories that we're looking for. And one thing I've learned over the years is it's hard to tell somebody to like, it's hard for me to assign a story. I almost never do it. Mm. Um, unless it's someone who's written for me a lot, who I know, um, would tackle something like that. Um, but it's, it's, they have a sense of what I'm looking for and the story kind of ends up in my email, but occasionally like, when I found uh, Devin Dabney's writing, it was on social media mm. uh, or someone like Kathy Carlo, you know, Kathy's on the cover of this new zine book and uh, she's someone who I kind of saw her writing and I was like, I, I want this. So there's a mix of me kind of finding a writer, but a lot of the times people just email me the story. So if you're thinking, if you're out there and listening and you're like, I want to send him a story, please do, because that's kind of, it's just as simple as it, it ends up in my email. And um, yeah, I'm always kind of looking for, Another thing the zine is different is embracing a first someone's voice. Mm. So a lot of uh, magazine um, in general sometimes try to have it all be in this one voice that is the magazine's voice mm. where I try to embrace the voice of the writer and let that writer um, have their own style. And instead of encouraging them, like you should make this sound like the zine, you should make this sound like you. Mm. And so that's, I think the main feature of the zine is that each person is embracing their own voice and telling their own story, how they want to tell it. Mm. And I'm just the vessel of gent, like I'll, I'll edit, you know, from time to time, but I'm always editing, telling them to embrace their own voice. Mm. Um, which that I think gets to the core of a zine versus a magazine. That's cool. Yeah, I really resonate with that. That's yeah, that's a really neat idea. I mean, I'm resonating obviously like through the lens of a podcast. But yeah, I think that's super cool. A lot of what I'm hearing you talk about as you talk about, you know, the the core of what makes the climbing zine what it is is people sharing the human experience through the lens of climbing. I'm putting you on the spot with this, but what are some of the biggest lessons that climbing has taught you? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we were talking about earlier and, and maybe a lot of people who are listening already kind of know my life story, but climbing basically gave me my life. Um, I was, when I found climbing, I was 20 and I was, um, 
on like a cocktail of substances that created a terrible kind of mental health landscape that led me to being to the point of like suicidal Mm. of that level of depression, you know? Um, And I discovered climbing around that same time period. So, you know, just to give a picture, like I was on medicine for ADD, like Dexedrine, which is like a high stimulant. Uh, I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I was smoking weed all the time. I was drinking alcohol and I was like drinking um, like soda all the time, you know, Mm. like a six pack of Mountain Dew. (laughs) And I was hardly exercising. So, and I'm a person that needs exercise. Um, And I was just miserable in this situation. And I was also in college and like just kind of floundering through college. And um, I was just, my mental health was really, really poor. And I would go out climbing and, and still to this day, I still smoke a little bit of weed. I still drink a little bit of beer. I'm not um, a sober person um, by any means, but I realized that climbing in the outdoors was going to create a high and a feeling of satisfaction that was greater than any sort of substance I could put in my body. Hmm. So I literally like quit smoke, like the, I, I moved to Colorado and quit smoking cigarettes within like months, you know, and like even for, and, and I stopped the Dexedrine too. So even just quitting cigarettes and these 80, these pills I was given for being a so-called ADD p- person and then climbing, like that switched my mental health. Like, um, you know, if my mental health was two before out of a hundred, it, it would like switch it to 70 or something. It's just mm. like the, the clarity that climbing provided and the, just general, just satisfaction of doing something with my body and, and exercise, just even just simply exercising, you know, just switched my mental health so dramatically. And obviously, you know, I think um, something I've learned in, in recent years too, is like a lot, like your, your, your hard times will stay with you for longer than you ever imagined if you don't completely deal with them. And that was something that took longer to deal with, but just like being outside, breathing fresh air, climbing on rocks. It's just, it, it was like, it was better than any like depression drug they could have given me. Mm. And I, I've never, I've never, I've never been given antidepressants or anything like that. And I, and I, I know some people need those, but climbing was like Prozac or whatever for me. Um, and it was, you know, like a completely natural thing. And then it also gave me all my friends and then it gave me my life's work. So climbing has really given me everything, um, which you have to be careful with that too, but climbing really like gave me my life basically. Mm. Yeah. Well, expand on that last thing you said, you, you have to be careful with that too. Do you mean that you don't end up in too much of a bubble or what do you mean by that? Yeah. You can't just rely on climbing for your happiness. Mm. Um, that's dangerous. And, and plenty of us do that. And I'm sure plenty of us could think of that one person that does that. Um, because you could easily get injured. You could have climbing be taken away right. from you. Mm-hmm. But I believe, you know, for me, um, you know, I'm 44. So I, I at this point where I, I live, um, I, I don't live the dirtbag lifestyle. Um, but for me, it's like, I need relationships. I need like my dog. I need sleep, diet, other forms of exercise besides climbing as well. So I think if you put you know, and I think that's what I learned that winter when I had tendonitis and I couldn't climb, I was a miserable person. (laughs) (laughs) And, and now I know if I got injured and couldn't climb, 
I would have these other kind of these other ways to find happiness. I mean, I feel like I'm the happiest when I'm climbing regularly. So it's, it's tough to say that I could be happy without climbing, but like there are, you know, just relying on climbing for your happiness is, is, is quite dangerous. I Mm. think. And yeah. Well, thanks for sharing all that, man. I've heard you talk about that a tiny bit and just um, touch on it. I haven't read your book yet. I'm excited to read your book because I know you talk on it in quite a bit more depth, but yeah, thanks for sharing it here. And um, man, climbing so powerful. I feel, I feel like I've, yeah, not to make your story seem general, your story is specific to you, but I hear stories like that a lot. It's powerful, man. It's a powerful thing. And um, yeah, no, that's, that's the feedback I get from uh, like, we were talking about this earlier as well. When I get a, a heartfelt message from someone, 95 times out of a hundred, it's from a young person who is, is going through what I went through 20 years ago and they're thanking me for writing it out. Mm. And so, and that's, that's, that's where, where my life's mission of, of telling people stories comes in because now I can not only tell my story, but I can highlight someone else's story. Mm. And there's a variety of people who have a variety of stories that, other people can kind of relate to as well. Um, so that's the other part of, of climbing, giving me my life is that it's so gratifying to get, like when I get those messages, it makes my day. Like I send it to my mom right away. My mom was an <laughs> English teacher and my mom kind of helped me get through a lot of, of what I survived. And yeah, the minute I get those messages and I send it to my mom. <laughs> <you know? laughs> that's awesome. What is your, what is your hope for the zine and for your business as a whole? Uh, you've branched out now, you have the podcast um, earlier today, we were climbing together at the gym and you were telling me about video and wanting to get into video and film and do more of that. I guess, what is your vision for your brand and for the change you want to make in the world and, and what you want to see this thing become? Yeah. So the vision for the brand is to stay true to what I've created and what we've created as, as the community. Um, because it's it's still raw, it's still kind of gritty, it's still um, not mainstream. So to be successful with something like that, like I bet there's a hundred other people that started something like this that didn't get to the level of success that the zine has had, you know. And, and for people listening, the level of success is just me earning a living and paying my mortgage on this condo and like living a pretty modest lifestyle, you know. So it's not like um, I have, you know, a bunch of, uh, money in the bank and, and whatnot, but I'm, I'm living a, a modest middle-class lifestyle in the, in a mountain town. Um, so the original vision of the climbing zine was just to be true to the essence of climbing. And it's that like feeling, it's like the feeling when you're 500 feet off the deck with your buddy, whether you're on a five, eight or a five twelve, and you're just like looking around you're like, this is, mm. Like, how do we get to live this life? The feeling that gave you your life. The feeling, the feeling that gave me my life and the feeling that I think all climbers experience. Mm. Um, that purity of like, like I understand why the old school climbers, some of them didn't document it, didn't talk about it, just like kept it that pure, like almost like a, like a, a yogi, like reaching that like samadhi or whatever it's called. It's just like, oh, this is it. You know, so climbing provides us that in, in the climbing zine is in essence trying to bottle that up. 
Um, but what I'm trying to do now with my personal life story is to scale my story out to a wider audience. And it's, um, I really, I feel like now that, you know, Free Solo, Don Wall, The Alpinist have penetrated the mainstream. And thank God they did, because I feel like it's so much easier to explain climbing in a mainstream mm-hmm. sense now. Mm-hmm. And it probably makes us look cooler than we actually are. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, because yeah. we're not those people. Um, but I, I want to follow into that lane and, and produce a movie about, um, you know, my climbing kind of being my mental health bomb and basically taking my story and, and scaling it up, you know, like Jay-Z, um, you know, hip hop is a big influence of mine. And, and Jay-Z was like, my goal is to reach as many as people as possible with my art. And Jay-Z was able to do that while staying true to his art. Mm. You know, plenty of, of people, when you scale, when you scale up, you're not able to stay, stay true to who you are as a person, as an artist. And, um, I, I want to kind of enter that like bigger, like, I would love to have like a film on Netflix where you're just like, all right, I'm going to click on your face, <laughs> hear, hear mm-hmm. your story, you know? Um, because I feel like I've, I've produced so much material, especially like with my books and stuff that have only had a tiny, real small audience. And, um, I am not okay with that. Like in a sense, not, not in a sense of business. I mean, there is that everyone wants to scale their business up to a higher level. Um, and it, it just makes your life, you know, better and easier, but it's, it's like scaling it out there to reach more like 20 year olds, you know, who need to hear what you went through. Yeah. yeah, And and to realize like, I, I'm not like an anti-drug person, but I'm like, you should always go climbing over doing like fentanyl <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Yeah, or yeah. like, um, you'll see in my book, the first climbing trip I ever went on was with heroin addicts. Hmm. Like half the people were heroin addicts. I didn't know at the time they were like friends of a friend, but I'm pretty sure all those people are dead. Hmm. And like, I'm sitting here talking with you on your successful podcast. And like, I have a, a, a great life. And like, so I, I feel like there's these, these forks in our road when we're like 2021 that just doing heroin a couple times could ruin your life, Mm. you know, um, or doing fentanyl or doing these really bad things that are out there and climbing is like a drug in that way too. But climbing is always going to be the better choice Mm. Mm -hmm. than these really other dark destructive things. So, um, it's, yeah, I just, I just really want to get my story out there in a bigger way and scale it. And, and also I, I think that challenge as an artist too, sounds really fun to like try to make a movie. Cause we've been, you know, I've been making several movies with two different filmmakers, Jake Birchmore and, and Greg Cairns. And, um, I love, I love telling stories through film. And I think like, honestly, I think a book and in film are the two most powerful ways that climbing stories are, are told, mm. you know? So Awesome, man. Um, I have one more question for you. And then I think it's, I think we're coming up on our 30 minutes here. So it's time to switch things around. But self-serving question for me, you've been doing the zine for what, 10 years? Um, 12. 12 years. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And now you've expanded into the podcast. You're doing film projects as well. I'm coming up on three years with the Nugget in February. We're talking in December. Any tips for me? Like, how do you keep it I guess the thing I'm most interested in is how do you make sure that you protect 
the thing that you loved in the first place. Um, cause you know, that's, I think one of the great challenges that anyone who makes something that ends up working, uh, comes to face with is like, okay, I made this thing. The response was great. Now I have all these opportunities and, and, um, you know, amazing things coming my way, which is so incredible. I'm so grateful for that. It's also really overwhelming, you know, like I'm, I'm feeling more, um, responsibility, which is great, you know, holds me to a high standard. I want that, but I also want to make sure that I remember what I love about this and continue to enjoy it and not let it become a job. Do you still enjoy it as much as ever? And, and how do you think about that balance? There's a lot there. It's a great transition for me to, uh, me interviewing you because I think there's things I want to pick apart of what you've done so successfully, so quickly. So, you know, some friends and I were talking the other night and on my birthday and it's like, you either work for yourself or you work for the man one way or another. Um, you now are, are working for yourself and you're working for the people. And like you said, you've kind of created this thing, like you've created your Frankenstein, you know, like you've created the monster <laughs> and the monster is alive. Um, <laughs> but I think you have to realize that you're the boss. You realize that you've, you know, you have an audience who, and you have been, you've been wildly successful for only being at it. I was surprised you'd only been at it for three years. Um, but I think you, you really need to realize that you're the boss and you've, you say you don't want it to feel like a job, but it is your job. Right, right. Um, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay yeah. with going to work because I like that. I like having accountability. I like creating something that feels challenging and rewarding. So that part of it's fine. It's just, you know, it's more, um, we just see it all the time. Like someone starts out creating something awesome and then the very thing, the very success of the thing like crushes them, you know, crushes them or crushes their art. And that's what I mean about you being the boss is that you can step away and, and take the, um, you're going to probably have to be real intentional about it. Um, but I think you almost sometimes have to be okay with like being behind on things. Um, but it's, it's like really like accepting the fact that you are the boss. Cause that's the, you know, Nipsey hustle, the rapper has this quote of like like what you're feeling right now that's how it's supposed to feel mm. all the pressure all the night waking up at one o'clock in the morning and starting to think <laughs> it's all supposed to feel like this but i think that like really leading with your heart instead of your mind because you know you've probably got more opportunities than you have time for totally and, yeah. and so do i but if as long as you're still putting out what you want to put out there into the world, you're being successful. So it's like, you almost have to kind of reframe the success in terms of, am I really proud of this work that I'm putting out there, even though I can't put as much out there as possible. And then the other layer of advice, I would say that something has been helpful for me is, I don't know if you go to therapy, but I have a therapist mm. who when I feel like I don't have enough problems to talk about, I just talk about my goals in business. And hmm. like, um, it's so helpful to wow. talk to this person to, cause I feel like you kind of have to have grandiose goals. If you're, if you're, if you've already made it to this point where you're earning a living, doing what you love to do, which hardly anyone gets to that point, 
you then you got to kind of think even bigger or even more grandiose and like having a person that's not your friend that's not um someone you're working with to have all this stuff stuff to express to um because i feel like if i don't I kind of feel like if I don't reach my goals or if I don't reach these points, I don't feel happy with my work or myself. Mm. Mm. And so you always have to be striving to reach these places, but then you also have to kind of carve out time to kind of be behind and everything. So um, that's something that's really helped me with, with not only my, my personal issues and different things like that, but just like having someone to just state a ridiculous goal to, and it doesn't have to be your therapist. Um, could be just your buddy you're having a beer with or that confidant. But um, that's something that's, yeah, I I would say has really helped me as as a person of just like sorting things out and and having this person that's not your friend that you can not only talk to you about personal stuff, but just like, like some people would call it a life coach or whatever. But um, to me, it's my therapist. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks for that. It's really helpful to think about. And um I have done some therapy and I'm kind of on pause with it right now, but, um, yeah, I always plan to do more. So I'd never considered that. I, I, I think, uh, when I pressed pause on the therapy, I felt like I'm in a really good place right now, you know, and, um, found myself like not really bringing enough to those sessions to really feel like it was worth this person's time and, and our time. Um, but I'd never considered that it seems really obvious now but like of course you know talk about the things that you want to do or the things that you want to create or make or share or give back or or whatever there's endless things to talk about there so yeah. in, in the, the friendship you know i have a friend um shout out to my friend sean Matasavage, who has been my kind of business guru since day one and he we easily could have gone 50 50 on this business it probably would have destroyed our friendship because we both have very strong personalities <laughs> But he was that person who would, he would bullshit me and be like, you know, you're our first, my first friend that's going to be rich or whatever, which never happened. <laughs> I don't know if any of my friends are actually rich, but, um, you know, that friend who almost can just gas you up and be like, you're, you're, he would, he would go to the outdoor retailer meetings with me. And when we had this, the black and white zines, we were going in to talk to black diamond. Like, this is the next big thing. <laughs> and, and just like, having He's like your hype audacity. man. He's my hype man. Yeah. 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 But also that. That person who'll get into the nitty gritty with you too. So nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, well, this is going to be fun. This is going to be great. We're just going to go for the listener. We're just going right into me asking you questions. Perfect. I've never done this. It's actually going to be really fun to switch from uh, uh, being asked the questions to asking questions. But um, my first impression of you was from, I think I first heard about you from Calouse. Calouse is we were talking about this earlier, just one of the most generous probably people in the climbing industry. I think he's, he's been that level of, of generosity for me. And when there's a Calouse endorsement, uh, I always pay attention. And then it was my friend, Dave Marcinowski, who just started listening to you. And Dave's like, he's, he's the one who I did the queen with and that. In that oh, film. Nice. Yeah. Cool. And he's just like the hardcore, you know, nine to fiver who works construction and also goes out and somehow manages the climb really hard cracks on the weekends and other stuff. And nice. um, he had given you the endorsement and then um, Devin Dabney had shared how generous of a person you are with your time. Um, but when we first talked on the phone, we were, we were still fleshing this out of how we were going to talk to one another. 
And I knew right away that I wanted to interview you as well, because I love your creation story. Um, so could you just kind of tell me about that a little bit? Like you were working in a nine to five, is that correct? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, I always have to be careful when I do this because I have a tendency to go go back too far and share, share it in my whole life, um, which we don't need to do right now. But yes, I studied engineering in college, uh, materials engineering, and um, worked in the climbing industry briefly in Bend, Oregon. I moved to Bend after college and um, didn't have a great experience, unfortunately, in the climbing industry, pivoted to aerospace and just ended up in a cubicle working for a company that builds airplanes and doing um, quality control, supplier control things. And never, it, it just, in a way, it was a good job. I liked the company, but in a way it felt like a big failure, I think, to me, because I never wanted to be the person that ended up in a cubicle. I think growing up, that was always what I was experiencing not expected to do, like no one was telling me that I had to do that, but that was my impression of how the world worked. You know, like I'm going to go to college then I'm going to get married then I'm going to buy a house, have kids, have a dog and work until I'm dead. Mm -hmm. And that terrified me, you know? So anyway, I end up in this cubicle and I had a pretty cushy job. I guess that's the easiest way to say it. And I could listen to podcasts a lot. And so, but I also felt really alone. You know, like at the time I was really putting all of my energy into my own climbing, climbing at Smith Rock on the weekends and having, you know, following training plans and always trying to think my way to being able to climb harder, obsessed with, you know, absorbing all the information that was out there, which wasn't much. Um, But I had kind of isolated myself in that. And then just being in a cubicle nine to five, that was even more isolating. And I started really leaning on long form conversational podcasts. And at first it was, you know, the cli- at first it was the climbing stuff, like listening to Caloose. And then it kind of evolved from there. And it's, this is not an insult to anybody who's uh, in climbing podcasting, but I always felt like the questions that I'm burning to know the answers to, or the questions that I really wish someone would ask my climbing hero, like for whatever reason, those questions aren't getting asked. And maybe that's just, you know, my personality, whatever, my climbing goals. But um, that was that was part of it. That was kind of a seed that was in there. But then I was also listening to podcasts completely unrelated to climbing and just hearing these really amazing, rich conversations between people, you know, people I didn't know, people who were, you know, armchair experts, like a, a big influence of mine. And it's mostly actors talking about, Hollywood and acting and things like that, but they're not talking about that. You know, I can't relate to their lifestyles or what they do, but they're talking about the human experience and sharing like, you know, Dax, the host is um, really open about sobriety and being an addict and being molested as a child and the ways that that's influenced him. And I just didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could be so forthcoming and vulnerable and honest and it was always amazing to me to hear him do that and to see the way that he was able to unlock, not unlock. He was giving his guests permission to do the same. And I thought that was really fascinating and cool. And I always learned so much from it, you know, as a person, like not just like 
how do I climb harder? Um, you know, how do I train better? But like really, oh, these are people that have thought a lot more than I have about what it is to do this human thing, you know, like how do we process all of the ups and downs and become the people that we want to be? And I was getting a lot, I was surprised at how much like uh, emotional and social fulfillment I got out of just like being a fly on the wall and listening to these conversations. And yeah, there, there was a specific moment. I was flying down to San Diego for a work training thing. And I was reading a Tim Ferriss book that's kind of, it's called Tools of Titans. It's like a distillation of a bunch of his interviews and just felt like, man, there's so many life lessons mixed in there, you know, but it's also about like tactics, performance, things like that. And I just thought this needs to exist for climbing. That'd be so helpful. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, I thought that I knew how to ask the questions or I, I guess I just had all the questions and I was like, Oh, maybe I can be, I don't, I don't want to tell anyone how to think. I don't want to put myself in any sort of authority role, but I have all these questions and I think I can be the one to ask them and lead with my own honesty and vulnerability as much as I can and give other people permission to do the same. It just felt like no one's doing that in climbing. You know, there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity to like you talked about your lane, you know, when we were climbing to get together and I resonate that with that. I was like, Oh, maybe this is my lane or this is a lane that no one's filling. And like, who am I to do this? But at the same time, like, I guess I should try. Um, I can kind of envision what this could be. And it was a, it was an idea for a podcast that w just went deeper, you know, like deeper into the nitty gritty, the geeky training stuff. Cause I always have questions about that, but also deeper into who is this human? Like, what is this shared human experience? What can we learn from people who have gone through really hard things and learned these amazing lessons from those things? Mm -hmm. And how do we, so much of it is like, I just think so many people feel alone, you know, and they don't need to because other people have experienced the same thing. Like you, like your story, it's heartbreaking and it's beautiful to see that you've turned it all around and built something out of it. Unfortunately, it's not a unique story. Like a lot of people struggle with the same thing, but you writing the book and sharing that, like there's some kid out there that reads it and is like, holy shit, I'm not alone, you know? And that's, I'm like getting kind of goosebumps right now, you know, talking about that. And, and do you feel, um, because we're just doing like a half an hour, I, I feel like there's three questions I would ask yeah. in between this one. Um, but I think, there's a kinship that we share that um, what we do also probably enhances our lives. Like what has interviewing all these people? And I'm guessing you've also interviewed people that like you were saying, Jonathan Seagrass is a hero of yours. And I'm guessing you've interviewed him. Mm -hmm. um, what does that bring to your life when you, when you get to ask all the questions, because if we were just a normal person going up to these people, like we've talked about, we both interviewed Tommy Caldwell you don't get the luxury of talking to them for an hour. No, it's a huge <laughs> honor and privilege. It's amazing. Yeah. So like, like what has, it's a total like saying, has that changed you from feeling so alone um, mm. to get to not only interact with someone who's your hero, but get to talk to them for two or three hours? Like what has, what has that brought? What has that brought to your life? It's yes, yes, yes. Um, absolutely. It has been 
amazing. And I, I always feel, I still feel like a lot of imposter syndrome, you know, like who, like I'm no one special. So who am I to be able to be in this seat? And you do have a great podcast voice though. Too. <laughs> I told you that earlier. I want to get that on record though. You do have a great voice. Thank so. you. Thanks mom and dad. I don't have, a, I can't take responsibility for that. It's just a lucky accident. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's just, just talking about what, yeah. what, it, what it's done for you to be able to connect with these people yeah. on, on such a deep level as far as a two or three hour conversation. Right. I mean, that's amazing. I, I feel so, the reason I like, um, I always spend lots of time in, in prep. Um, I take that very seriously and I always edit a lot and I take that very seriously. You don't do the Larry King approach? <laughs> no, I don't. I can't because I don't, I don't know. Maybe I don't trust myself as an interviewer. Maybe there's some like, you know, some deep stuff for me to dig into there. But it's more that like, it's such a privilege to have two hours of someone's time. I, I It's really important to me that I respect that time and make it like the best experience I can for them. I don't always nail that, but I really take that seriously and try. Um, I ask a lot of self-serving questions because I do want to, like, that's my genuine curiosity. You know, I do want to learn things that I'm most interested in about these people, but I've also seen, and, and this is something I learned from Tim Ferriss. Um, but I've seen it happen for myself too, is that when you do that, when you explore your own genuine curiosity, almost everyone listening can relate to it in some way, you know, or maybe not everybody, but like the people that there's a lot of people that are going to share that. And that's actually almost the greatest gift you can give is like giving them a specific situation, the context of the question that I'm struggling with. And then, you know, ask my guest about it and hear their thoughts. Like that's, you're taking something really specific, that might not seem relatable on the surface, but there's always like a deeper universal truth there. So that's why I do it that way. Um, of course, it's like totally been educational for me and my climbing and just as a person. But I think that you asked like, if I feel less alone, I think the thing that's made me feel really full doing this and, and feels most fulfilling is actually the people listening, you guys listening and your responses and the messages that you get. Like I've never, I've never felt more seen, I think, than I have doing this. Like when people say, oh, I had those same questions too. Thank you for like being willing to ask about that. You know, something like that is like, that's me being like, oh, it's not just me. There's other people out there who wrestle with these same questions or same things. And I mean, it's, it's just amazing how this thing has become like a community, you know, like I, I, I honestly didn't really ever think of that. I didn't really expect that. Um, it seems kind of obvious maybe in hindsight, but I was focused more on like, you know, extracting the, the expertise, the wisdom, um, the lessons learned from these people who have done really cool things in our, in our industry, in our sport but it's become a lot more than that. And, and that's really special. Yeah. Did I answer your question? Absolutely. Absolutely. What have been some of the hard parts? Cause I, like I said, and I think our initial phone conversation is you're doing this, um, for a living now. Um, thanks patrons. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. Yeah. Thanks sponsors. And, um, yeah, I guess just, 
break break that down. Well, actually, no, I don't, I don't want to do the double question. <laughs> um, <laughs> what what were the really hard parts of transitioning from having a very secure job with benefits, all these things? You're you're not feeling fulfilled. What were the hard parts in in transitioning to the Nugget podcast and like? What was the most like, what was so difficult and what was so scary? Because I have to imagine there is both of the fear yeah. and like, oh, I've maybe bitten off more than I can chew or. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that the first thing that comes to mind is actually the the hardest part has been a lot more recent than you might expect. I think early on, I had a really good plan. Um, the podcast sounded really fun. It was really fun. And I really, I, I feel like, uh, I really believe that this is true. And I really um, think that this is good advice for anyone considering doing something like this. I would have done it even if it hadn't worked. Like I really loved doing it and I just wanted to try, you know, I wanted to see if I could make the show I wanted to listen to basically. And it didn't really matter to me if it worked. Um, I hoped it did obviously. And I tried to stack all the cards in my favor and make good, you know, try to educate myself on the smartest ways to uh, make it financially sustainable and things like that. But, um, I, you know, I have had a ton of advantages in my life and I'm super grateful for those. I was an engineer, so, and I'm a single guy. I don't have kids. So I was able to save up money and give my, basically buy myself a year. Like I have a year where I have enough money saved that I'm not going to be stressed out. So the first year was actually really fun. It was just doing something new that was exciting. I had tons of energy for it. I was traveling. I was climbing. I'd been, you know, I was about to say stuck. Stuck's not fair. Uh, Bend, Oregon's amazing. But I had been in the cubicle. You know, I'd been living in Bend and climbing at Smith Rock for seven years. And it was, I was overdue for a refresh, you know. So the first year or two, maybe year and a half were just really fun. Um, I think the the hardest parts came later when that initial excitement started to wane, you know, and then it's like, okay, let's go back to the drawing board here. Cause I still love doing this and I still want to do it. But if I don't change some things, I'm, bur- I'm going to burn out. I can see the writing on the wall. I, I can relate to that. I, I think about stopping the zine all the time now. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then what? I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't. I have. I feel an obligation. But do you do you still enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Um, but it's uh, it's. It, I think we're we're probably both getting at it's it's work. It's, it's like work, you think yeah. Steph Curry wakes up every single day and is excited to play basketball, right? You know, I, I think that eventually that. Like they say the honeymoon is over or whatever, like that kind of thing. Cause it's what you're doing is work. What I'm doing is work. Mm-hmm. And I, that's why I think that you ever heard that phrase. If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. It's total bullshit. the worst bullshit. <laughs> People didn't stop saying that. Yeah. Um, but this, this is, this is your turn to talk about your uh, yeah. difficulties. So yeah, I get the sense, but I also get the sense that you feel this obligation to your audience. Is that true? Like you, you feel like you want to, continue to deliver uh, uh, um, this this product for better or worse that's high quality that's always getting better is that part of what what feels like the work to you or is it how you're arranging everything in your mind or 
Mm, I'm n- no, I mean, yes, I do feel an obligation um, just because I feel honored that anyone's listening and I feel honored that anyone would want to or be willing to sit down with me for two hours and record something. So in that sense, and like I have a platform now and oh man, like there's a lot of learning that's come with that because no one teaches you how to use a platform to make the world a better place. You know, you just have, you're thrown into it and you're like, shit, I'm, I'm like barely keeping up with the thing that's working. And now, holy shit, it's actually like really important to me that I use this for good and, and try to, you know, make positive change with it and pay more attention to social issues and things like that, uh, which is great. Um, I think it's balance. I think that's like the pain point has been just, you know, the, I didn't have balance for the first year and I got away with it, you know? And now, you know, basically I've been living in a van traveling and pretending like I'm a pro climber for the last three years, not like in, uh, the way I walk into a room, but just like lifestyle, you know, but I'm not. And there are very few people that climb full-time outside who have full-time jobs. And I constantly need to remind myself now, you have a job, you have a job. And yeah, it's way more flexible than your cubicle. It's way more fun than your cubicle. I'm like insanely, it's, it's a better job than I ever could have hoped for ever in my life, but it's a job. And climbing outside and chasing climbing weather constantly in the hustle of that and working from the van and you never have Wi-Fi when you need it and finding a place to record. And, um, you know, all of that, it's just the collective, all of it that's, that's wearing me down, um, or has worn me down at times. And the solution is not that complicated. It's like, okay, something needs to give, you know, like I need to take a couple months and rent a co-working space. I did that this summer. I, was in Estes Park. And my original intention was to try to climb my first V12 in the park. And then the weather was kind of wet and and still hot and not really ideal. And upper chaos got closed and I felt exhausted. And I was like, maybe that's not the thing I should be doing right now. And I pivoted, rented a co-working space and just had routine for two months and kind of slowed things down. And I think that's, um, yeah, that's something I'm thinking about a lot these days is like, what does long-term sustainability look like? Because it's, you know, it's, we all glorify like the van life thing and we all glorify the traveling and it's amazing and it's a huge privilege and I'm so grateful for it. It's also exhausting. And um, these days I'm, I'm craving more routine and stability and, and trying to figure out what that looks like. So. Yeah, and I feel like routine is... Uh such an important thing for the creator's um, life because you're just not as like, I'm not as productive as I want to be. I'm jealous of really high productive people um, because I don't have that. But I've also realized if I work every day or like a climbers every day, because, you know, they, they, (laughs) they say, you know, like Stephen King's advice, like write every day, but if you're a climber, you're not going to write every day, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so every day in quotation marks, but if you like, if you make the effort, you know, I, I think that like consistency of an effort will lead to a lot of work in, in, in the long term. But um, I also feel like climbers, like we're, are, there are predictable trends of climbers um, because you, 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 I can't really think of 
the, the someone who's a dirtbag forever and is happy and fun to be around and everything. <laughs> you know uh-huh. what I mean? Yeah. We have these phases of our life and, yeah. and it's like, you know, um, there's that phase of maybe our early thirties or whatever, where we're like, all right, I kind of, I, I, I need both. I need the, uh, the constant climbing and exploration and everything. But then you almost, you kind of desire more of a home base and, and more of a routine and everything. And, and seasons, um, like yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot lately is like, it's okay to have seasons. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you move into a van and you start traveling and it's like, holy shit, I don't have to take off seasons anymore, you know? But off seasons are actually really important um, for me personally, psychologically, emotionally. I just feel way more excited about climbing if I take some time away from it every now and then. Even if that time away from it is training my ass off in the gym, you know, it's just so much less time. It's so much simpler in a lot of ways. It's not the hustle of like lining up partners and plans and things like that. It's okay to have seasons. Um, That's been a big lesson in the last year. It could be the name of our episode. It's okay to have seasons. <laughs> I like that. Um, what are some of your favorite moments from the podcast? Uh, favorite people, mm. favorite conversations, um, favorite light bulbs that went off? Man, that's a totally fair question, but I always really struggle to answer that question. Someone, yeah. my buddy Sean actually was telling me that Tim Ferriss, like the question I just asked, he probably would have asked that in a more friendly way. Um, you know what I mean? Like he's good at breaking down, like don't ask someone what their favorite Uh movie is, ask them their favorite moment in a movie. Mm. That's why I tried to ask the moment Uh thing, but like, (laughs) what was there a moment? Like, um, was there just someone you're like, this, this person is, is just kind of giving me a moment that was unexpected and and beautiful. And, um, is there anything that that pops out in your head of, of certain individuals that you're just like, wow, I'm really honored to have this moment with this person. Mm, I mean, I'm having trouble thinking of specific ones and I'm having trouble like choosing specific people. Cause, cause there's so many of those like that, what you just said right there. Um, yes. So, so many moments like that, but yeah. no, uh, no, I mean, that's the, I think that's the answer for me is like, I try to be, I try to get to know people and be prepared going into an interview um, so that I can ask better questions, whatever, but people will always surprise you, you know? And it's those, it's those moments in a conversation where you just really get into something that you, that wasn't even on the outline, you know, that wasn't even in your mind before you went into it. It's just the conversation leads in a cool direction and you connect over something or someone feels safe enough with you to really open up about something. It's, it's like them bearing their soul, you know, like that's a, like when, when you do that with someone, like you, you feel it physiologically, you know, and it's, it's a really special thing and it's something that's maybe getting lost. Um, But it's also something that's kind of unique in a way to this format is that, it gives you an excuse, like you said at the start of the conversation, to to sit down and have like so much more intention and bring thoughtful questions to to a hangout. You know, like when you get together with your friends, you just don't do that. Most people don't do that, and um, it's just so much easier to just shoot the shit and whatever. And and those moments are, I get to have them every week. You know, it's it's really special. So I'm having trouble thinking of specific ones. I mean. I'll tell you this, I've told this on the podcast before, but when people ask me if I have a favorite episode, I'm like, well, 
kind of know, like a lot of them are my favorite, but if I had to pick one, uh, my conversation with Alan Watts is still really special to me. It, you know, he was a kind of local, he is kind of local hero at Smith Rock. And I didn't know him very well before we met up to to talk about the podcast. And I went out to lunch with him and just picked his brain for a few hours. And I think, you know, it was him, it was, it was the history, it was my connection to Smith, it was all of those things. And it was also the first time, you know, he ended up being episode four. And I walked out of that lunch. I don't think I'd even recorded a podcast yet. So he was like one of the first people that I'd really prepped with. And I left just thinking, just with this massive smile on my face, like that was so much fun. Mm -hmm. This thing that I'm trying to make is going to give me an excuse to do that all the time. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. And I just remember walking down the street back to my car with this massive smile, just thinking like, even if no one listens to this, this is going to be the most fun I've ever had. I think that's such a, a silver lining of, because um, even myself, I'm like, you, you've been able to do something in three years um, that could arguably take a lot longer, you know, to, to transition. Um, but it is that maybe the statement that if you love what you do, it's not work is bullshit. But like, if you get so much out of what you do, that's maybe that's going to sustain mm. the effort over the long term. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely part of it. There's also just, uh, yeah, we need to wrap up here. I, <laughs> I just want to acknowledge this. Like, yeah. there's there's just also, and and honestly, I appreciate this more and more as more time goes on. I don't think I fully appreciated this early on because I. I'll just say what I'm going to say and then I can add caveats, whatever. But um, I had a lot of things, a lot of cards like stacked in my favor, you know? Um, like I said, I was an engineer. I was able to save up money. I had a safety net. That's huge. Someone that doesn't have that, you know, like I, I've talked to Devin about this. I, Devin Dabney, like I love his show so much. I think he's so good at what he does and he's so uniquely positioned to make that show like no one else can make that show but Devin but he's got like seven jobs you know like he doesn't have the time that I was able to give myself and that's that sucks like that I and I I'm I want to help him if I can or help anyone who's struggling with that that's actually a, a project that I'm uh, working on right now um that I don't want to talk about too much yet because it's still in its infancy but but yeah, like I, I don't have kids. I am single. I'm an introvert. I was able to just pour myself into this thing and make it the main thing for years. You know, like every week, all my energy was into the podcast. I was climbing, but honestly, as much as I was talking about climbing, the podcast always came first week in, week out for years, you know? Um, but that's, it's all those advantages that gave me the space to be able to do that. Yeah, and I, I, I still feel like you, sh you should feel good about what you accomplished because I think sometimes having everything stacked in your advantage doesn't give you the hunger to then create the work, you know? So I think you should pat yourself on your back um, for, for doing the work and, and, um, and continuing to do it. Um, and I really want, just want to commend you for um, your willingness to openly share information. I know because we just had a half an hour with, with one another, we, we can't get into too much nitty gritty of, of 
how you've been able to like use Patreon really effectively and then not only use it to benefit yourself, but to show others how to um, benefit their own work and their own podcast. And so when, when we, whenever we have time to each interview each other for, for longer, um, I'd like to get into some of that. But um, I think that you're a, a very um, important person in the climbing space. And I feel like you're, you're doing it in a very humble, curious um, way that that's benefiting a lot of people. So I think you should feel really good about of what you're doing. Thanks, man. Yeah. It means a lot. I really appreciate that. And same to you. I know all of these things. I don't know what it takes to put out a zine, but I know that everything that I've tried to do has taken way more work than I expected. So I imagine it's a shitload of work and a labor of love. And uh, it's awesome to see what you've created. So keep it up. All that. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Well, two, two different podcast hosts signing off from <laughs> whatever this is going to be. So <laughs> well, I guess we'll do our, our own intros and outros. Yeah, yeah we probably will. But yeah. um, to everyone listening on The Nugget and on The Dirtbag State of Mind, appreciate you guys. And thanks for listening. Definitely. Right. That was my conversation with Stephen Dimmitt from the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Um, hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. It was really cool that he came to Durango on his way to Hueco Tanks and, and really took the time to sit down with me and, and have this conversation. And I'm super grateful for it and just gave me a lot to uh, a lot to think about. And hopefully it inspires you all in, in whatever endeavor uh, you're getting into whether it's your climbing or if you're starting a business or a side hustle or whatever hopefully that gave you some insight into uh, both of our worlds music for this episode is from devin dabney chad rich is our digital editor and producer and signing off from snowy durango colorado i'm luke Miha. peace